0: nuclear, oops, did fallout from an atomic bomb test at the Nevada test site kill all-American icon movie star John Wayne? That's the tantalizing question two young filmmakers asked themselves when they learned that in the aftermath of shooting the racially incorrect film The Conqueror, starring Wayne as Genghis Khan, in St. George, Utah, more than half the cast and crew died within a few years of cancer this included the duke who lost one lung before losing his life the film was shot not long after the bomb test code named harry and referred to as dirty harry for the amount of radioactive fallout that got deposited on nearby saint george utah which is where the conqueror was shot and while the military and our government tended to dismiss the devastating health impact caused by radioactive fallout because they believed it only fell on a powerless throwaway population adjacent to the test site. It's a real eye-opener when one of these documentary filmmakers tells us that the powers that be panicked when they realized the unintended consequences and had to ask themselves,
1: Do we kill the greatest American icon who's this brash, brazen, confident cowboy representing sort of that world of Hollywood. In a way, that may have been an admission that did this actually backfire on us because we weren't impacting the quote-unquote low-use segments of the population. We were impacting America itself.
0: Or at least impacting America's self-image and favorite icon. Well, when Mark Shapiro, co-director of the new documentary Downwind, reveals how John Wayne's story led led him and his partner to the larger story of those trapped downwind of the Nevada test site's 100 atmospheric nuclear weapons tests and how in truth every one of us is a downwinder, you get that sinking feeling of how bad it can be in that awful devastating seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what
2: are those people thinking? New-
0: the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we talk with Mark Shapiro. He is co-director of the new documentary Downwind, about to have its world premiere at the Slamdance Film Festival in Park City, Utah. He speaks of what it was like to learn the ins and outs of downwinder issues and the government's non-responses, and hear what he learned from sources who have been on the front lines of downwinder issues and battles for decades. We will also have nuclear news from around the world, Numbnuts of the Week for Outstanding Nuclear Boneheadedness, Linda Pence-Gunter with the Nuclear Hot Seat Hot Story, and more honest nuclear information than anybody can ever expect to get out of George Santos. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, January 17, 2023, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Here in the United States... The Santa Fe, New Mexico County Commission is raising concerns over a proposal by the U.S. Department of Energy's National Nuclear Security Administration to send 34 metric tons of surplus plutonium to the Los Alamos National Lab. Under the proposed plan, the lab will process the surplus weapons grade plutonium into powdered plutonium oxide, which will then be transported to the Savannah River National Laboratory in South Carolina to be made unusable for weapons, meaning up until that point, they can still be used for weapons. Once processed, the material would then have to be transported from South Carolina back to New Mexico to the Waste Isolation Pilot Plant, where it will be stored. The transfer proposal, quote, has the potential to put millions of people at risk for financial and health impacts from potential accidents or incidents and dangerous disposal of surplus weapons-grade plutonium. The National Nuclear Security Administration says that they will hold a public hearing on January 26 in Los Alamos. That location frustrated some commissioners who felt this would make it hard for Santa Fe County residents to participate. And to learn more about governmental scheduling shenanigans that undercut any protest to nuclear issues, check last week's Nuclear Hot Seat number 603 with Karen Haddon about how the Nuclear Regulatory Commission scuttled in-person meetings too late to accommodate long-standing Plans by those who oppose the Comanche Peak nuclear license extensions from being heard. The Government Accountability Office has said in a report that plans by the National Nuclear Security Administration, here we go again, for reestablishing plutonium pit production do not follow best practices and run the risk of delays and cost overruns. The GAO report says. NNSA lacks both a comprehensive cost estimate and a schedule outlining all activities it needs to achieve this capability, noting that Congress has mandated a deadline of 2030 for turning out at least 80 plutonium pits per year. Greg Mello, director of the Watchdog Los Alamos study group, said that not having a schedule or cost estimate means the NNSA does not know what it's doing and has little likelihood of success. He said, these are elementary normal components in any program or project. After more than two decades of preparation, NNSA doesn't have them. Nebraska Public Power District is studying sites for a new nuclear plant in that state, specifically a small modular nuclear reactor. In 2011, Nebraska Nuclear at Fort Calhoun was famous for having been turned into a nuclear island surrounded by water from the flooding local river, as a result of which it risked a Fukushima-style meltdown. You'd think they'd have learned. Just a sampling from the Ed Lyman NRC report, the Waterford nuclear plant in Louisiana has identified a potential violation with its radiation monitors. From June to September 2022, radiation releases in an accident would have been underestimated by 30%. In Georgia, at Southern Nuclear's Vogel 3 nuclear boondoggle, an emergency license amendment is being sought to rework piping which has been experiencing unusual vibration as the pumps reached peak flow. But Arnie Gunderson of Fairwinds Energy Education, a licensed nuclear reactor operator and whistleblower, points out that Plant Vogel is safe and not operating, this is not an emergency, and that this push for an emergency license amendment is actually a rush to completion. While one person on the Twitter thread posted, nuclear plant going after Guinness Record for slowest, most expensive energy project ever. For more on Vogel, here's Linda Pence-Gunter of Beyond Nuclear, with the nuclear hot seat, hot story. The two
2: reactors were originally supposed to start up in 2016. They were expected to cost $14 billion. But then the completion dates for Vogel 3 and 4 in Georgia, the only two of 34 reactors planned under the so-called nuclear renaissance that might actually get completed, got delayed again. And again, four times in six months alone in 2021. Over the years, the contractors sued each other. The reactor manufacturer, Westinghouse, went bankrupt. The price kept rising, the delays kept coming. The latest estimates put the eventual costs at more than $30 billion. But then last February, the owners, Southern Company and Georgia Power announced that Vogel Three would really truly definitely come online in March, 2023. Except it isn't going to, surprise. During testing last week, the operators found not-so-good vibrations coming from a pipe in the cooling system. But of course, as a Georgia Power spokesperson said, it's not a safety issue. And the fix is going to add another $30 million to the eventual cost. The second of these two boondoggles, Vogel 4, is not expected to come online until 2024, which probably won't happen either. Despite this latest fiasco, we continue to hear reference to the nuclear renaissance, as if it was actually a thing and and that it could be again. Except that the grand nuclear plans in the US were never a success, even before that last aborted effort launched in 2007 to raise the industry from the dead. The US nuclear industry's whole history is lamentable, even if you laugh off President Nixon's absurd prediction that there would be a thousand reactors in the US by the year 2000. In fact, of the 253 nuclear power reactors originally ordered in the United States between 1953 and 2008, 48% were cancelled, 11% were prematurely shut down, and 14% experienced at least a one year or more outage. Amongst that number were 157 reactors that were either cancelled before or during construction. The most notorious, of course, was Watts Bar Unit 2, which took 42 years from start to finish, finally beginning operation in May 2016, at which point it had a transformer fire and was promptly taken offline. Watts Bar 2 finally achieved full operational status on October 19, 2016, making it the first US reactor to enter commercial operations since 1996. You'd think anyone with half a business brain would take one look at these numbers and run a mile from any scheme to start building yet more nuclear reactors in this country. Would you put a $15,000 down payment on a car if you knew that by the time you actually bought it, it would cost at least $32,000? Of course you wouldn't. But unfortunately, one US administration after the next is doing precisely that and with taxpayer money. So we are supporting these failures with almost no recourse to say no. Vogel 3 and 4 yet may make it to the finish line. Let's make sure they're the last. I'm Linda Pence-Gunter with Beyond Nuclear, reporting for Nuclear Hot Seat.
0: And that's this week's hot story. Thanks, Linda. In Japan, the Tokyo High Court upheld a not guilty criminal verdict by a lower court that cleared former Tokyo Electric Power Company's executives, four of them, of negligence over the 2011 Fukushima nuclear power station triple meltdown disaster. The ruling sits at odds with a separate civil case brought to the Tokyo court by TEPCO shareholders, which found the four former executives responsible for the 2011 nuclear disaster. More will be revealed. Back last November, Tokyo Electric Power Company, TEPCO, announced that it will measure the concentrations of 30 types of radioactive materials, including tritium, to determine whether or not to discharge radioactively contaminated water from Fukushima Daiichi into the Pacific Ocean. No word as to what their findings have been as the country barrels towards more than 1,000 tanks of water from Fukushima contaminated with tritium and possibly other radioisotopes as well. How is the country able to get away with this? Might the media be complicit? That's what you're about to learn in this week's Nuclear Hot Seed
2: Nuclear Hot
0: Seed Nuclear Hot
2: Seed None that sound week.
0: Heads up for a languaging rant. Japan Times is a supposedly reputable newspaper in Japan that presents what are supposed to be well-researched, journalistically verifiable articles but their bias is showing. In a recent article on TEPCO's intentions to discharge Fukushima's tritium-contaminated radioactive wastewater into the Pacific Ocean, the number of not-neutral wordings must have set a new record for the publication. It starts from the headline, and here I quote, Fukushima-treated water likely to be discharged in spring or summer. Nothing about international opposition to the move that wants to stop the discharge. Just get used to the fact that it is likely to happen. Treated makes it sound like it's okay, but the system used does not remove tritium. And then there are the other radionuclides not copped to that are in the water. And that's just the headline. Other manipulations meant to manipulate public response to the radioactive water release that's being pushed by the government calling the concentration of radionuclides, specifically tritium, low-level, saying that it's in line with international safety standards and poses no harm to public health and the environment. But how about some context here? International safety standards? Set by whom? Based on what? How accurate are they? And how challenged have these safety standards been? No harm. Ha! <laughs> Every radionuclide we are exposed to threatens harm, including chest x-rays and MRIs. It's held cumulatively in the body and is capable of causing everything from cancer to breaks in your DNA so that any future generations that source back to you have been compromised and low-level. Again, compared with what? That's wiggle wording. More from the article. Through its cooperation with the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, the Japanese government is continuing its effort to enhance international understanding toward the handling of treated water. In other words, they will keep lobbying, propagandizing, manipulating, and who knows, incentivizing other countries to see things their way grant tacit, if not active, approval of the plan, or at least have them agree to say nothing against it. There's more, but this final paragraph really gripes me. Quote, Most nuclear power plants around the world routinely and safely release treated water containing low-level concentrations of tritium and other radionuclides into the environment as part of normal operations, according to the IAEA. That doesn't make the practice right! or safe, or that the IAEA, which has as part of its charter the mandate to promote nuclear reactors and promote nuclear energy, that it's the trustworthy agency for setting these standards and practices. In other words, lots of empty reassurances, pats on the head, and there, there, missy, don't worry, you're pretty little head about it. So for all of the many lies woven into this story and others, that are bullying the public and the world into accepting the unacceptable, a release of radioactive water into the Pacific, where it will continue to pollute waters for 120 years from tritium, and possibly forever based on the unacknowledged other radioactive contaminants. In that water, Japan Times, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that sound week. For more specific information on the water release, we will link to an article that includes an interview with Sean Burney, Senior Greenpeace Specialist on the Impact of Fukushima's Controversial Plan to Dump the Radioactive Water into the Ocean. In international news... Rafael Grossi, Director General of the International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, said that brokering a deal on a safe zone around Ukraine's Russian-controlled Zaporizhia nuclear power plant is getting harder. This is because not only diplomats are involved in the process, but the military as well. Russian President Vladimir Putin currently has no plans to meet with Grossi, who said they are playing with fire. A nuclear accident is in nobody's best interest not even the Russians. In Belgium, the government has confirmed an agreement to extend the operation of two reactors by 10 years each. While in the UK, the founder of the British energy company Ecotricity came out against the UK ministers confirming state backing of a nuclear project, Sizewell C, in Suffolk for more than 700 million pounds. Dale Vince said, Nuclear energy is much more expensive, It eats tens of billions of more public money than renewables have, and we will do it for a very long time because we have to actually deal with the radioactive waste as well. He went on to say, I think that what we have we should keep, and we should use it, as we transition into 100% green energy. We shouldn't be building size well. The next one. Beatrice Finn, the outgoing leader of the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons, tweeted, Are we finally ready to talk about how the nuclear policy community is dominated by money from nuclear weapons companies? And then points to a new piece of research out on how research funding patterns help shape the nuclear marketplace of ideas. We will, of course, link to it. We will also link to a joint report from ICANN and their partner, Don'tBankOnTheBomb.com. It's the 2022 report, Risky Returns nuclear weapons producers, and their financiers. The report details how 306 financial institutions made over $746 U.S. dollars available to 24 companies which are heavily involved in the production of nuclear weapons, this between January of 2020 and July 2022. These companies contribute to the nuclear arsenals of China, France, India, the Russian Federation, the United Kingdom, and the United States. As shown in the report, fewer long-term investments were made in the companies behind the nuclear weapons industry. The data shows a $45.9 billion with a B dollar drop in loans and underwriting. This could signal that a growing number of long-term investors does not see nuclear weapon production as a sustainable growth market and regards companies involved in it as a risk to be avoided, And sometimes those that we oppose give us some great ammunition. The World Nuclear Industry Status Report has just been issued, and it contains scathing information on Russian nuclear energy, the industry that has gone unsanctioned by the West. That's because it is essential for the operation of many power plants in Europe and beyond. We'll have more on this in the coming weeks, but for now, we will link to this article, which has got some jaw-dropping stats in it. It will be on the website, NuclearHotSeat.com. This episode is number 604. Look for the list of links. The list of nuclear dangers and disasters is as endless as the dangers from plutonium which remains radioactive for 240,000 years. It comes from the Trinity A-bomb test in New Mexico, Hiroshima, Nagasaki, years of atmospheric bomb tests in Nevada and the South Pacific. Then there's radiation releases from uranium mining, refining, reactors, highly radioactive waste we have no way of storing safely, and accidents, as well as for those people who were downwind from atmospheric nuclear bomb tests, as you'll hear in this week's episode. Yet, despite the known risks to health and safety, the nuclear industry perpetuates itself, making obscene amounts of money while threatening the future of the planet and of life itself. And this ongoing nuclear threat is why you need Nuclear Hot Seat. To help you understand what's going on in the nuclear world and what you can do about it. We cover not only the industry's shenanigans, but how it got this arrogant. The many brave activists around the world who are fighting back and how any one of us can take action towards stopping this atomic madness. At Nuclear Hot Seat, we're dedicated to giving you the nuclear stories you can't find in mainstream media, and we vet the information to provide context and continuity so you can understand the full, ongoing picture. But in order to continue, we need your help. That's why the time would be right, right now, to support us with a donation. Take action! Go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the red Donate button to help us with a donation of any size. And you can set up a monthly donation of as little as $5 a month. Hey, it's like a cup of coffee, you know? Don't think that's too small to make a difference, because those $5 donations are what sustains this show from month to month. So if you value Nuclear Hot Seat, help us continue by doing what you can now. And know that however much you can help, I'm grateful that you're listening And that you care. Now here's this week's featured interview. Those who keep trying to raise warning flags about nuclear issues face the difficulty of getting people to listen long enough to understand what the problem is and what's being done to try to mitigate it. That's where films on nuclear issues become so important. They put a lot of information in concentrated form represented by the stories of difficulties faced by real human beings. As a result, the public can watch, learn, understand in a concentrated period of time and hopefully be motivated to find ways to take action as a result. Recent films have covered radiation contaminations in North St. Louis, California's Santa Susana Field Lab, and there's an upcoming film, Radioactive, The Women of Three Mile Island. Now, joining that illustrious group is Downwind, a new film about the consequences of the 100 U.S. atmospheric bomb tests and 828 underground tests at the Nevada test site. Its ground zero focus for information is on St. George, Utah, not only a downwind hotspot, but a popular location for film shoots, including the infamous carcinogenic John Wayne film The Conqueror. Downwind examines the significance of that Hollywood potboiler, as well as what happened to regular people who happened to live in St. George. The film will receive its world premiere on January 23rd at the Slamdance Film Festival in Park City, Utah. To learn more about it, and how one of John Wayne's most wrong-headed films plays into the narrative, I spoke with Downwind's co-director, Mark Shapiro, on Friday, January 13, 2023. Mark Shapiro, thanks so much for joining us here on Nuclear Hot Seat.
1: Thank you so much for having me here. I appreciate it.
0: First of all, congratulations on your film Downwind, and we will be talking about that. But let's start out with a little bit more about you. What is your background as a filmmaker?
1: Uh, my background as a filmmaker, and I'll also answer this for my co-director Doug Miller. We started working together on films and documentary pieces. Um, all the way back to the aughts of the new millennium, I guess, the new 2000s. And we produced videos for Monster.com. They had a program called the Diversity Leadership Program that was for rising students, juniors of diverse backgrounds that helped them kind of gain place in the marketplace for themselves. And Doug and I did a lot of personal stories with them and really tried to zero in on what makes students unique. And there were a lot of companies that were involved with this program that supported them, like Starbucks, American Airlines, and Enterprise Rent-A-Card, large U.S. companies that we engaged with the representatives from the companies to help kind of create these videos that were not just... There were videos that really told stories about people and companies um, investing in individuals. And from then on, Doug and I made several little mini-docs together and films. Doug has experience with a film right now that's airing on Netflix called Why Did You Kill Me? and two other film titles. We've always worked on films together and and lots of shorts. This is our first feature together.
0: Before you began working on Downwind, what had been your awareness of nuclear issues?
1: I grew up in an extremely progressive household, and my parents will be thrilled that I'm saying this. So uh, nuclear issues, it was, uh, we were always aware of, We grew up in Seattle, so we were aware of the Trident situation there, and in Colorado, the situation at different nuclear plants in and around Colorado and nuclear power. And I didn't have a lot of knowledge when it came to nuclear weapons, however, growing up, but it was sort of ingrained in me to keep questioning, you know, why are we doing certain things? Why is our government doing things? Leading back to, I mentioned my somewhat of a progressive background, you know, constantly asking, what is the government doing to help? make life better for all of us. They're elected officials. They work for us. What are the dangers inherent in nuclear weapons and nuclear power? And it was something that was sort of ingrained in me in, in a young age until we came to this topic.
0: What brought you to this topic? How did you first become aware of even the concept of downwinders?
1: It's a great question. We Doug and I began research on a film that was shot in St. George called The Conqueror. And we were just curious about that from a Hollywood perspective, which was interesting to us because looking back now, a lot of people are saying, well, this thing that was shot, it impacted John Wayne. Who cares about John Wayne? And we kind of took that approach. We're like, well, wait a minute. John Wayne as a representative image, as sort of a cultural icon, represented American guts and bravado and... We looked beyond the production itself. So we were zeroed in on St. George, on what was happening in St. George to this alleged thing that happened to the production, The Conqueror, and on the cancers that allegedly developed to the cast members on the film. And then we took a step back and we thought, well, wait a minute. If they were impacted, what about others? What about the Shivwit band of the Native Americans that lived in the area of St. George? What about the communities around St. George? What about the individuals? And that brought us to Claudia Peterson and others, but Claudia Peterson, who had spoken a lot about downwinders and we wanted to go right to the source. And she gave us a lot of information that kind of connected us to different people and hearing about downwinders. We were led to Ian Zabarte, who was the principal man of the Shoshone Nation of Indians. And Ian was very outspoken when it came to nuclear issues. And we didn't realize that the Nevada test site rested on Shoshone Nation land. That was another eye-opening Everything that we came across was it would just open our eyes further to what was going on in Nevada.
0: What year was this that you were learning this information that you started on this process?
1: We started several years ago, but actually in earnest about three years ago. And a lot of research, a lot of data collection, a lot of interviews, a lot of pre-interviews, a lot of collection of names, people that we thought were significant members of this community that could speak and give more information about the issues that were impacting not only the Shoshone Nation, but others. In particular, we ran across what Claudia had said in past interviews talking about a quote-unquote low-use segment of the population, and we wanted to find out what she meant by those words, and according to her, it was, you know, the Native Americans, it was the Mormon community, it was ranchers and folks living in just sort of direct line of the Nevada test site.
0: And to make the point, this was not her term, this was a government term that was used to dismiss the people who were downwind and in the way of the radiation that was released.
1: Correct. So that was significant to us. When we read in government documents and in research that we had done online and in libraries, low-use segment of the population struck a chord, because what does that mean? Who does that impact? And then also, when you start to think about nuclear detonations, there's a lot that was said about the nuclear detonation that was called Dirty Harry that took place prior to the Conqueror that dusted St. George with some of the highest levels of radioactivity ever recorded in the United States history. And a lot of the research and a lot of the data that we collected coming from the government talked about how they didn't realize the winds were going to change directions and go towards St. George. And to me, I asked the question, will the wind go somewhere? So you knew you were impacting someone. And I think going back to what Claudia described as the low use segments of the population, she also said that those three groups tended not to speak out against the government, tended not to have a strong sort of infrastructure of communications with the government where they could actually get in front of government officials and talk about why this was happening. In the Nevada test site, there's a museum in Las Vegas, National Atomic Testing Museum, and they acknowledge that the winds change direction. They acknowledge Dirty Harry. They talk about that shot, Dirty Harry. And what I thought was interesting to me is what goes up comes down, right? It goes somewhere. Obviously, You don't want to impact population centers. You don't want to impact individuals either. And so that's where we dove deeper into this topic that, you know, we're all Americans. That flag represents everybody living in this country. And how can we justify, how can the government justify, the the elected officials justify the fact that nuclear detonations are still taking place, or were still taking place from 1951 to 1992, that impacted those segments of the population, and that's everyone.
0: Let's roll this back slightly. We're talking about activities that took place at The Nevada test site. What was the magnitude of the US nuclear test program there? How many bombs were exploded above ground and underground in that area while it was active?
1: According to records, 928 detonations took place at the Nevada test site. Although there are other numbers that we've seen that probably more took place, but there are 928 is sort of the number that the government has admitted to. And 828 of those detonations were underground, 100 were conducted above ground. And those would be the typical mushroom clouds that you would see that people are pretty familiar with. And going back to your original question, I was familiar with Alamogordo. I was familiar with Manhattan Project and Trinity just through my, you know, American history classes. I was surprised, actually dumbfounded to know that there were 928 detonations on American soil.
0: Ian Zabarte, who you mentioned already... Is principal man of the Western Bands of the Shoshone Nation? Ian has labeled it, and it's quite accurate, that the Shoshone are the most nuclear bombed nation on the face of the planet. When these bombs went off, the 100 that were atmospheric, where did the fallout spread to, and do we know how far it went?
1: According to a lot of researchers, and according to one researcher in particular, There's a map called the Miller map that shows the detonations from the test site and how it impacted not just areas of the test site, but all over the country. And you could argue all over the world as things go into the atmosphere. It's very, very difficult to pinpoint exactly where radiation landed. It goes somewhere. Some of it is dispersed into the atmosphere as we've seen in the movie. And as as the Atomic Energy Commission has admitted in those newsreels, It does get dispersed and it moves away and it falls to the ground. Does it fall to the ground because of rainfall? Yes. Does it fall to the ground just because of the weight of the material? Yes. It's hard to pinpoint exactly where it went. But Claudia and others are fond of saying, you know, we are all downwinders because we knew there were pockets in Alabama and there were pockets in New York at the Kodak plant that impacted the film that was made at Kodak. So it's difficult to say, was it just the area adjacent to the test site? It Scientifically, it went further through the jet stream.
0: When you began working on the film, why did you initially focus on St. George, Utah?
1: We looked at St. George, Utah because we were told about this production called The Conqueror, this John Wayne movie, which we found fascinating, where we read in a People magazine article from 1980 that, according to the article, over half of the members of the cast suffered debilitating or life died of cancer from the detonations. This included not only the cast and crew, you know, people like the gaffers and the key grips and folks like that, all the way up to the main stars, including John Wayne, who was a chain smoker. We all know that. But his son in the movie even admits that the numbers are skewed so differently that it, it requires us to look deeper within the movie and why potentially this happened.
0: There is an anonymous quote that I read from the Pentagon where somebody in the military said, oh, my God, we killed John Wayne. So, it was the film The Conqueror that initially led you to St. George, Utah, as a starting point for this film. And then you got into contact with Claudia. What was it that you learned? How much organizing was going on, or what continued to keep you involved in this topic with St. George?
1: One of the things that we found really fascinating about this topic was that each fact that we would find out or uncover through research, through libraries, seemed to uncover something else that was equally eye-opening. The thing with The Conqueror for us, yes, this film, obviously, the folks in the film were impacted by the radiation. But to your point about John Wayne, John Wayne represented America. Did we just kill John Wayne? To me, that was the government official saying, did we kill the greatest American icon, who's this brash, brazen, confident cowboy, representing sort of that world of Hollywood and everything in a way that may have been an admission that did this actually backfire on us because we weren't impacting the quote unquote low use segments of the population, we were impacting America itself. We like to look at John Wayne as we took the lens back, even though we were interested in the film The Conquer, we like to look at John Wayne as the icon and sort of the symbol of this film, you know, did America kill John Wayne? It's fascinating. And in a way, it's like saying, did America do this to itself?
0: In other words, instead of nuking the throwaway population in this very racially biased and genocidal perception, they nuked or destroyed one of the biggest and most important and most valuable assets. What led you to expand the film's focus beyond St. George and beyond The Conqueror?
1: As we started to do research on this film, we understood that there were pockets of the country that were more impacted than others in sort of random order, you know, because the winds and things like that are random, right? I, there is a predictability, but there's also the idea that the weather can change. And so different pockets of the country were impacted. As we talked to more people, we began to see this sort of community of individuals that were all telling the same story, that there were detonations, that people they knew were impacted, there were, there were these clusters. And that, to me, was unconscionable that our country could continue to do something like this, knowing that they were impacting individuals. And so the research begot more research. And at every corner, there, there seemed to be a new eye-opening experience. We felt like, in a lot of ways, this film was almost breaking news, but it shouldn't be breaking news 30 years later. It shouldn't be breaking news that there were 40 years of atomic testing in one location in Nevada that no one, no one seemingly knew about. What were some
0: of the other areas
1: where, as you were making the film or as you were developing the film,
0: you shifted your focus to be able to get their information as well?
1: As we talked to different people, it became clear to us that we wanted to speak to people who were authorities on this topic, You know, including medical doctors and scientists and the people that were directly impacted. And so that was the strategy with this film, was to make sure that we had all the people speaking on the record coming from so many different backgrounds. Including Hollywood, but also individuals, Americans. They're all Americans. They're all connected by the American flag, or, you know, in Ian's case, not necessarily, but still, we were all aware that we had to speak to people that were authorities on this subject and on this topic.
0: And what were the locations that you focused on beyond Utah?
1: Obviously, Nevada, all around the test site, including going right up to the boundary of the test site where the guards came out with with their guns out. We also shot all over Utah. A lot of areas in California, east around Death Valley, the Nevada test site sort of skirts the California border. We shot a lot in that area. We also took it back east to New York City, where we interviewed Louis Black.
0: Louis Black, the comedian?
1: Why? The reason we brought Louis Black onto this production was for a lot of people, they were surprised that Louis Black had done comedy or commentary about the fact that you could hide under your desk to get away from a nuclear bomb. We felt like he added sort of a, you know, tragedy plus time equals comedy. And he added that sort of that element of there was a ludicrous thing going on. And who better to explain that than Louis Black? And by the way, I'll add one more quick thing there. As we were filming in New York, they released a PSA about nuclear, which was bizarre to us. But these are the kinds of coincidences that were happening. As we're getting ready for Louis Black, this PSA comes out from New York talking about what do you do in case of a nuclear bomb? And the way in which the woman narrates the piece, which we included almost the whole thing, because why was this suddenly happening? Was it because of the war in Ukraine? It was to prepare people, but we hadn't gone very far when it came to the what the newsreels looked like back in the fifties and the forties to present day, and that that just so shocking to us that we that that happened. But it was another coincidence that kept us going.
0: In terms of location, what? kind of focus did you then shift to the area in New Mexico, Arizona, and into Texas, which are also identifiable and recognized downwind areas from the nuclear tests?
1: We spoke to a lot of people in those states. We didn't include them in the film because we were very focused on the Nevada test site and the states that were impacted by RECA, the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act, which is an underfunded act that's about to sunset next year.
0: And that was to compensate those people who were exposed to the radiation from the tests in some kind of quote unquote meaningful way that really hasn't been anywhere near the amount that it deserves to be for the people who were harmed, if not for the families impacted by deaths.
1: Correct. By the way, you mentioned New Mexico, where Trinity, Alamogordo, people in New Mexico do not qualify for RICA. People in Texas do not qualify for RICA. People in most of the population centers in Utah and Nevada don't qualify for RICA. So that was another area that we wanted to expose was the idea that RICA is an act that needs to be expanded. Even folks in our film, Claudia Peterson and Mary, felt self-described as downwinders do not qualify for RICA, even though it's impacted their lives significantly. Your question about how did the film develop, it kept taking on new areas. We held the government responsible for what happened. But then there's also the action that a government can take to help protect its citizens. And we didn't feel that that was enough by any stretch. Everybody has been touched by cancer, unfortunately. We all have cancer stories in our lives individually. And when you throw $50,000 to people that qualify, it's almost a slap in the face because it doesn't cover enough. And the poops that they make you jump through to qualify for RECA are ridiculous. And a lot of people that I mentioned, including... You know, some of the people that do qualify for RECA, absolutely qualify for RECA. They make you jump through so many hoops and figure out how to get from a point A to point B to even submit an application that I think people give up. And $50,000, is that enough?
0: That's one stay in a hospital. If you're lucky, it covers that. For those people who have worked on RECA, I've heard them say that the government policy to them is delay, deny until we die. And that does seem to be the case. You mentioned some of the activists as we have been talking. Who were your key activists interviewed for the film? Many of them we've had here on Nuclear Hot Seat, so we're familiar. But tell us who you have in the film and what general areas they are commenting upon.
1: We started with Claudia Peterson in St. George, an incredible activist, incredibly inspirational. We also spoke to Mary Dixon, another person who identifies as a downwinder. One of the central characters in our film is Ian Zabarte. Ian was remarkable in connecting us to other people that we could also talk to, including other members of the Shoshone Nation, like Darlene Graham, who's a Shoshone spiritual leader. Interestingly enough, we saw Keith Rogers, who was a military reporter in Las Vegas for years. He actually passed away during production, which we were gutted when that happened. It was a horrible loss. Keith was an incredible individual, connected us with so many different people. Keith connected us to it. A person named Kevin Camps, who's a radioactive waste specialist in the D.C. area.
0: Kevin's with Beyond Nuclear, and he's been on this program more times than almost anybody else.
1: The way he talks about the impact of nuclear weapons, that that took us another different direction, too, because Kevin brought up the idea that in published governmental documents, they referred to the low-use segment of the population as, quote, more like us than mice we were taken aback and we immediately went and researched and found the document he was talking about. It was a government document issued in a meeting. And again, just sort of shows the idea that in order to become a global superpower, this is what we have to do. And these are the people that we have to impact to make that happen. I don't know how this could ever be justified. I understand and I recognize my privilege as an American, but I also understand the need to hold our government accountable for acts like this.
0: What was the most surprising thing to you? That you learned in the process of making the film?
1: I think the most surprising thing to me was the connections to the people and how closely I became. And Doug Miller, my co director, each one of them became almost part of our family. You know, we're texting them every day about, you know, just everyday things. But when low use segment of the population, and then we met people that quote unquote fit into that general terminology, and we were amazed at the connections that we made with the people that we got to meet and the stories that they told.
0: What do you think prevents the United States from being more proactive on behalf of the citizens that it has already harmed?
1: That's such a great question. I don't know if there's an answer other than politicians these days seem to be more concerned with the fact that they're going to get reelected. Like day one, they get into office and it's it's all about they're wanting to be reelected and they don't want to upset the apple cart. Everybody is so divided when it comes to Democrats and Republicans in particular. There's just gridlock when it comes to taking care of people. I think they're looking after their own long-term jobs and not really concerned about citizens, especially citizens that they sort of consider off in the background.
0: One of the things I found surprising, edifying, and way too short for my taste in the film was when you got into the DNA impact of radiation, radioactivity, what it actually did. What did it take for you to put that element in? And do you feel that it was explored extensively enough?
1: It's a good point. We wanted to make sure that we had a, a scientific and a medical perspective of what exposure to radiation can cause to a body. That was Dr. Mench, who's based in Salt Lake City, who's also a two-time cancer survivor. He took us through what happens to DNA and the restructuring of DNA. And the also What's interesting is the people that passed away, that's one thing. But the fact that DNA moves through generations, you know, this has generational impact. That was connected to Claudia, where she's had tremendous loss in her family, not just people before her, like her parents, but all the way up to her own daughter and others in her family much younger. So we felt DNA was an important thing to explore, to talk about the impact that radiation has on DNA.
0: What is happening with the film? Has it been shown yet, or is the upcoming presentation at Slamdance its world premiere?
1: Slamdance will be its world premiere on January 23rd in Park City. We're super excited. First of all, we wanted to premiere this film in Utah. This was intentional to be in Utah, and also at Slamdance, because Slamdance really supports independent film. It requires a budget restriction, You're not going to see big blockbuster films at Slamdance. I think people are surprised because our cast is, you know, we've got some Hollywood heavy hitters in our cast, but our budget is right in line with the Slamdance budget. And that's why we wanted to be there. It was You know, we were really, really focused on wanting to be in Utah and having our folks from Utah be able to actually drive to Park City to be able to do a panel and Q&A after the film.
0: Tell us about that Q&A, because I saw a lot of familiar names in there and I know the quality of the content they're going to be able to provide. Many of them have been on Nuclear Hot Seat in the past and we will link to their individual interviews, but tell us who's going to be there and in general, the area they will be talking about.
1: Our panelists include Mary Dixon, who is a downwinder and Salt Lake City writer. She's a playwright and has written and spoken extensively on the human toll of nuclear testing. Claudia Peterson is a downwinder who grew up in Cedar City, Utah, and has faced tremendous loss in her family. She's a nurse now in St. George, but has been all over the world and spoken about the dangers of nuclear power and, and its impact on our lives. She is an amazing, inspirational person who's been to Kazakhstan and has also talked to fellow quote unquote downwinders in that part of the world. So she's spoken to bereaved families and talked to them about the impact of nuclear testing. We'll also have Ian Zabarte, who's the principal man of the Western bands of the Shoshone Nation of Indians. Ian, as you know, because you know Ian, has spent his life devoted to activism to stop nuclear power on Shoshone land, deeded Shoshone Nation land. We'll also have Scott Williams, who's the nuclear policy consultant from Heal, Utah. And then the directors, Douglas, Brian Miller, and myself will be there as well. And it's going to be narrated and moderated by Laura Jones, host of Radioactive on KRCL Community Radio Salt Lake.
0: And she's somebody I definitely would like to get in touch with because I never knew about her program. So we need to link up there. Will listeners to Nuclear Hot Seat, who truly are around the world, be able to watch the film? And if so, how can that be accomplished?
1: Go to our website, backlotdocs.com, and we'll have updates as well as social media channels that you can follow our film and where it will be played. At this point, we're only screening at Slamdance, and then we have another group of festivals that I I can't uh, talk about yet, but we have other places that will be screening around the country and around the world. We're hoping that this film will, will go worldwide and that people will be able to see it and comment on it. But our website will have all the updated information, including media and articles about the film and its sort of journey through this process.
0: Are you aware of the International Uranium Film Festival?
1: Yes, I am, as a matter of fact.
0: Okay, yeah. because that's a submission that you need to be doing as well. Absolutely. Is there anything we haven't covered that you think would be important for us to get to now?
1: I just think it's really important that a film like this helps raise consciousness about what happened and not just look at the past, the past atrocities, but the future. And we can all make a difference. We can all make a change, but we we have to be a part of that change. And People hear this all the time, but I think it's really important that we take a step back with everything going on with our 24-hour news cycle and realize for 40 years, this country, this nation, or the Shoshone Nation, Nevada, whatever you want to call it, was decimated by 928 atomic explosions, many of them bigger than those from in Hiroshima and Nagasaki combined. And we're all aware of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It's in our history I think we as a country need to embrace what happened, lean into it and make change.
0: We wish you and your co-director, Douglas Brian Miller, for the work that you have done for putting this important film together and getting it out into the world. We wish you every success with Downwind. And also my thanks for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat.
1: Thank you so much. What a pleasure to be here. I really appreciate your time that you took with us.
0: That was Mark Shapiro, co-director of the new documentary film Downwind. We'll post a link to the film's website and keep you informed of any ways in which you will be able to watch it online. We'll also have links up to featured interviews with several of the activists featured in the film, including Ian Zabarte and Mary Dixon, and Nuclear Hot Seat's analysis of that New York City PSA that Mark mentioned, one that updates the concept of duck and cover for millennials. All will be up on our website, NuclearHotSeat.com, under this episode, number 604. And while you're there, look for the yellow opt-in box. And if you haven't already, sign up so you get one email a week that contains a link to this week's episode and a brief summary of some other material in the show.
2: Activists, Activists, shout-outs, shout-outs,
0: There's a high-powered webinar on why small modular nuclear reactors won't fix. It's being put together by the IEEFA, which stands for the Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis. Participants on the panel include David Schlissel, Director of Resource Planning Analysis in the United States, who has over 30 years of experience as a regulatory attorney and consultant on energy and utility issues. Naomi Oreskes from Harvard, who is an internationally renowned earth scientist, science historian, and author of both scholarly and popular books and articles on the history of earth and environmental science. And Mark Z. Jacobson. He is director of the Atmosphere Energy Program and professor of civil and environmental engineering at Stanford University. They'll be discussing why small modular nuclear reactors as a tool to fight climate change is not such a good idea. It will be held on Monday, January 23rd at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, and you have to register for it. We'll have a link up on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 604. The next day, January 24th, fasten your seatbelts because it's better than the Oscars, the Emmys, the Grammys, and the Golden Globes combined. It is the 2023 setting of the Doomsday Clock. And you can watch live while the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists reveals how close the world is to blowing itself up with nuclear weapons. It's a yearly highlight from the Bulletin. So where do you think the Bulletin will put the clock this year? In 2021 and 2022, it's been set at 100 seconds to midnight, the closest it has ever been. But last year's decision was made just before Russia invaded Ukraine, before all those threats of nuclear bombings and multiple near-misses of missile assaults on the six-reactor Zaporizhia nuclear power facility, which damaged power supplies and risked multiple meltdowns. As a sidebar, many of us, myself included, contacted UCS after the war began and asked them to stage an intervention on the doomsday clock to reset it closer to midnight in light of this new and heightened danger to the world. But they declined. Now, as they reset, I'd like to see it at something like 50 seconds to midnight. Less than a minute, but there's still wiggle room to turn things around. Will they have the vision to dip below one minute and scare the innards out of the international nuclear establishment? By next week's posting, we'll know. So stay tuned. And while you're waiting, the Bulletin has published their playlist of songs that mention or demonstrate direct inspiration from the Doomsday Clock. Among them, Two Sons in the Sunset by Pink Floyd, Why Did I Fall for That by The Who, The Call-Up by The Clash, and songs variously entitled Seven Minutes to Midnight, Two Minutes to Midnight, Minutes to Midnight, and Wasteland, Baby. We'll post the list on NuclearHotSeat.com. Or you can look them up individually on Spotify. And if you wanted to learn more about the Doomsday Clock and how it got that way, we'll have a link up to Nuclear Hot Seat number 592, which has our interview with the head of the Bulletin, Rachel Bronson. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, January 17, 2023. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, beyondnuclear.org, nears.org, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons or icanw.org, the bulletin.org, ieefa.org, washingtonpost.com, santafenewmexican.com, norfolkdailynews.com, counterpunch.org, science.thewire.in ChinaMIL.com, Tokyo-NP.CO.JP, CNIC.JP, Japantimes.CO.JP, Yahoo.com, Reuters.com, KOB.com, Canary Media, Nukenet.org, EnergyLiveNews.com, WorldNuclearReport.org, the soul-dead cubicle drones who write propaganda for world nuclear news, and be captured and compromised by the industry they're supposed to be regulating, Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Our thanks to Linda Pence-Gunter for the Nuclear Hot Seat Hot Story. Hey, the nuclear world doesn't stand still, and neither do we. So you deserve to have Nuclear Hot Seat every week. The best way to get it is via email by signing up on our website, NuclearHotSeat.com, in the yellow opt-in box. All it takes is your first name and an email address, and every week you will get one email. We don't bug you, we just send you the one, which will have both a link to the show and a short description of the show's content. Or you can sign up at your favorite podcast channel. We don't care, as long as you get Nuclear Hot Seat and listen to it every week. Because nuclear stories are always a moving topic, and we need your help to keep it that way. If you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at NuclearHotSeat.com. And remember, if you can, go to Nuclear Hot Seat and donate, because we really need your support. Anything you can do will help, and we will really appreciate your support. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2023, Libby Halevi and Heartistry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed, as long as you cite the program and the website. This is Libby Halevi, producer host of Nuclear Hot Seat, reminding you yet again that a sister Megan Rice warned us, none of us is out of prison as long as one nuclear bomb exists. That's it. You have just had your weekly nuclear wake-up call. So whatever you do, do not go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear